0: It's your time to ed up with America's leading higher education podcast network, the EdUp experience where we make education your business. This is ed-up legal with your host, Patty Roberts. She's Dean at St. Mary's school of law, and she's going to be leading conversations about legal education in today's world. Now let's hear from your host, Patty Roberts.
1: Welcome to EdUp Legal. I'm Patty Roberts from St. Mary's University School mm-hmm. of Law, and today's guest is Dean Madeline M. Landrieu. She's the Dean of Loyola University, New Orleans College of Law, which is also her alma mater. She is also the Judge Adrian G. DuPlanche, Distinguished Professor of Law. Welcome, Dean Landrieu. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. I think you are the first dean of a New Orleans law school that we have had on. And I, I always find the law schools in New Orleans so interesting because you are tasked with teaching not only common law, but also civil law. So how how is that different? How does your law school first year look different maybe than mine?
0: Yeah, so it's a really good question. Louisiana civil law history and culture is studied and learned all over the world so when people say to me why do y'all still have the civil law in Louisiana you're so limited I'm like yes to Louisiana and the rest of the world so instead of being modeled after England and you know (laughs) London where the common law came from um, all of the civil law countries around the world share a common tradition with us so the way it would look different in our first year curriculum is while you teach contracts we teach what's called obligations And in many respects, it's very similar, but the language is a little bit different. Um, Obviously, we all teach constitutional law. We all teach criminal law. We all teach most of the curriculum is very similar, but it's a lot about vocabulary differences. And it's also then about precedent and our codes really govern as opposed to case law interprets the codes, but our codes govern. So it's a little bit of a different understanding of the way the law, the results are reached. So So the
1: rest of us are really the minority when it comes to the world. I
0: I would say, I would (laughs) say if you measured us against the world, y'all are in the minority. But the the thing is, is, it's not very hard for a civilian trained lawyer to understand the common law or for a common law lawyer to understand civilian terms. For instance, the statute of limitations in a common law setting we call prescription. And there are different rules about it, but essentially means you have only a certain amount of time to do stuff. Right. <laughs> you have to know what those times are, right? So there might be some difference in the interruptions and the way that work, but generally it's not very difficult for one scholar to learn the other, or to at least once you ask the question or explained it, you go, ah, that makes sense.
1: Well, and you bring a lot of practical experience to your deanship. You started July 2017, and um, you not only had been in private practice, but also served on the bench for quite some time. Can you tell us a little bit about your path to the deanship and how you landed there and why?
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. My students kept saying, we want to set goals for ourselves, and we want to be know what we're going to be doing in 20 years. And I said, do you all think I ever had d- being a dean on a bucket list? It was not ever. Not only on a bucket list, it wasn't even in the realm of things that I thought about when I graduated from law school. I went into private practice I was a litigator with a firm that was known for just for trying cases. We tried civil law cases. I tried several very high-profile criminal cases, but the primary practice area was in general civil law, and I did that for a very long time. And I used to. I'm very Catholic, and so I would just pray in gratitude that the political gene in my family had passed me by. You know, I had siblings, (laughs) my dad was serving in public office, my sister and brother was serving in public office, and then I realized that that gene was just a little bit latent in blooming, right? And so after about six years of private practice, uh, several people in the community called and asked if I might consider running for an open judgeship on what's our civil district court which is a civil only bench. This bench is a, a point of first entry trial court level bench without criminal jurisdiction or a juvenile jurisdiction. It's exclusively civil. So I ran for that seat in 2001 and loved every bit about being a judge and the opportunity to serve in that way. My dad had just retired from an appellate court seat where he'd served for 10 years. And, uh, It was a great job. It was a great way to serve. It was a great way to both be in public office service while also adhering to what I love so much, which was the law. My brother and sister had both been legislators and were then moving into sort of executive positions, but it was really great for me. And then I had an opportunity to be elected to the court of appeal. And um, when some openings happened on that court and I took the opportunity to run, both of these were citywide elected positions at large for the city of new orleans they weren't districted so i had a citywide races interestingly my siblings were running i was we were all like we had lots of campaigns going on in my family but
1: oh my goodness could you yeah. use like the same bumper stickers yeah did we tried it didn't quite lesson? work it, yeah
0: it didn't quite work but we did try to consolidate where we could there actually was a slogan at one time an, an opponent's slogan was too many landrews like there were just too many of us <laughs> out there, right, to to defeat one of my siblings. But then you could say, to, not, enough, not that, enough. Yes, that's what we said. Actually, not enough. So after I served 16 years in total on the bench and was very happy in those roles, both at the trial court and at the appellate court, it's quite an honor to serve in those positions and to write law and understand law and dig deep into the law and to really help people solve really deep problems. I was asked once if I might consider doing a TV thing. And I told the producer, I said, if you're really interested in people's real problems and how the law solves them, then I'd be interested in talking to you. But if you're only interested about creating drama and making fun of people, I'm not really interested. And of course, they never called me back.
1: Good for you. And yes. yes, we, we know their answer. Cause you're not on TV. Right? Yeah,
0: they never quite call me back. So it was an interesting, um, very interesting, very fascinating. And I, it was a great honor for me to do that. And during the whole time of my judicial career, I was attracted to and spent a lot of time engaged in judicial training, the teaching of the training of the orienting of judges to the bench Because many judges come to the bench having been a prosecutor their whole career, and now they're going to preside over a civil docket, or they've been a civil lawyer their whole career, and now they're going to preside over a criminal docket, or they were a small town lawyer who did successions and donations, and now they're going to end up with a major class action. So the Supreme Court asked me and a group of us to put together some judicial training that I was very honored to be a part of. And through that work, I just came to really love teaching. And that little seed sat with me for a while. And then the law school called and said, hey, we're looking for a dean. And that's kind of when I started thinking about this position. But up until then, it had not occurred to me to be the dean of a law school at all. It just wasn't in my, it wasn't on my path. It wasn't in my thinking. In 2015, my eldest had four daughters. My eldest daughter was graduating from college and revealed to me that she was thinking about law school, which of course, mom of the year, I wasn't aware of that either. (laughs) So I started looking and paying attention a little bit to the law schools and really as a parent, your eyes are where your children are. Absolutely. So for the years that I was a lawyer and a judge, my eyes were professionally there, and personally they were on the little league field, right, and in brownies and Girl Scouts and ballet and all of those places. And even though I'd been a very active alum of this law school, my alma mater, I had sort of turned my attention just elsewhere, just by function of there only so many time, you know, hours in a day. But I was always involved as an alum on the visiting committee, on the alumni board. So when the dean, when my daughter entered and the dean announced that she would not stay on, I started really caring about who the dean of our law school was going to be and started asking around and calling friends around the country who I knew were great deans and doing a little recruiting because now it's personal to me, right? My my daughter's here. Yeah. And people kept saying, why not you? And I was like, oh, no, no, people. Oh, no, no. This is not for me. I have the job of my dreams. And I really just dismissed the idea out of hand. But it was a two-year search. They didn't start the search immediately. And the idea kept taking root. And the more and more I talked to people, I thought, you know, why not? If my law school is in need, if I can serve in that way, Mm -hmm. why not go serve in that way? And I really didn't think much harder about it.
1: And as a good Catholic, you were called to the mission Uh, that
0: you served. It felt very much that way. Um, You know, my dad is a graduate of this law school, and you know, he recently passed. We just celebrated his life. He was in the 1951 class in which the first African-American was admitted to this institution. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And his relationship with that gentleman, whose name is Norman Francis, who became the longest serving university president in the country. He um, was president of Xavier University and HBCU here in the city. Norman became like a father to me. His children were raised like siblings to me. And it was my dad's relationship with Norman and their relationship with Loyola that really inspired both of their lives and all of our lives in public service. And so this university has always held just a very close and dear place in my heart, my parents met here, you know, so a all, roads really yeah. all roads really, all roads lead through office. Loyola, yeah, <laughs> yeah, as a matter of fact, I told my sister, the senator, I said, you know, you thought you were something, when you and United States senator, but now I'm the dean of the law school, she's like, look, you just jumped the family food chain, <laughs> right, like, <laughs> because of dad's love of this law school, so it was a funny little sibling rivalry joke.
1: Well, and I'm really interested to ask the following question. You indicated that it was such an honor and really a dream job to be on the bench, but now you're dean of a law school, and I'm interested to see where this position ranks relative to being on the bench.
0: Yeah, you know, it's not a ranking, honestly. Um, The jobs are very different. The job of being an appellate court judge is a very cyclical job. You read, you write. You research, you cabal with your law clerks, you cabal with other judges. Um, Actually, Justice Kagan spoke to the deans a few years ago and she said the same thing and and it resonated with me so greatly. She said, you just use, it's like a deep tissue, like you use the same muscles over and over again and you hone them and you get better and you hone them and you get better and the issues change, but the practical day-to-day is the same. And in the deanship, she said, you're using muscles you never thought you ever had. You're just using skill sets you never knew existed, right? Or You're like building muscles on the fly. Exactly. (laughs) It's just a much different job. And what I love about it, because people have asked me that often, and I haven't been able to rank them because it's not a ranking. It's literally a different way of serving the law and serving the people involved in it. And I just love being with the students and seeing their optimism and understanding and appreciating and sort of driving them with their promise right they I keep telling them that we're not training them to solve yesterday's problems we've got those kind of figured out or we've screwed them up so badly they can't ever get figured out we're really training them to think about tomorrow's problems and to be creative about what that means and to do that means that you're not just a clinician and i don't mean that in the way of clinical professor versus ordinary professor i really mean you're not it's just not a skill it's a discernment it's a thinking it's a it's a it's an understanding that the law is designed to meet the needs of a society and it's our job to make sure the laws stay current that we don't fall into old habits that don't work anymore and to think about how the law can creatively work to keep us organized so that we can be happy right that's ultimately all of our goals right is to just be happy during our time here
1: well i love hearing you talk about discernment because of course we too are a catholic institution and and that's a big part of it is helping our students to connect with what their skills um, and passions align with what their vocation is Um, and it's fun to watch that develop because I like you could 20 years ago there's no way I would have seen where I would go and making them understand that the route can be circuitous but you can still serve your passions and your purpose but
0: yeah as long as you remain open to where where you're being led and so, and, do, and my father used to just always say to us, "Go where you can serve the best."
1: That was great advice. Now, you were discussing with me before we started about a new institute that's helping to expand knowledge about the law among lay people, and I was particularly intrigued by this, the Nancy Marsiglia Institute, because we are in such. A moment of uncivil discourse. And I understand that this is meant to help us promote civil discourse in solving those problems um, of tomorrow. So please tell us a little bit about the Institute.
0: It's really exciting. So when I was a judge on the Court of Appeal, community leaders, just women in this community that I've known forever and ever, had an idea, and their idea was spawned by the 2016 Democratic National Convention when Mr. Kazir Khan pulled his constitution out of his pocket and challenged then Republican nominee Trump, said, Mr. Trump, you don't know your constitution. And a Democratic woman friend of mine, a Jewish woman, called her friend, who's a Protestant woman, and said, I've been involved in politics my whole life, and I don't understand the constitution. If I get a group of friends together, will you teach it to me? And of course, Martha said she would. And before Martha was off the tennis court, the next morning at nine o'clock, her friend, who's also Madeline, had 10 women ready to come and study the Constitution for a week around a kitchen table for lunch every Thursday. Oh, that is amazing. Yeah. So I ran into one of the women and I said, can I come? And she was like, no, you're a judge. You know too much. You're too smart. You can't come. This is for those of us that don't know anything. And I said, well, honestly, none of us really know anything about the Constitution. We don't teach it enough." Anyway, I was rejected. I licked my wounds and went back to my chambers and, you know, (laughs) went about my business. And they called me at Christmas and said, listen, we're having our final graduation luncheon and celebrating Hanukkah and Christmas. Will you come be our commencement speaker? So I went and these women had tiaras and sashes and they had printed certificates of completion from Office Depot and they were very proud of what they did. And I walked into that event, and it's just among a group of girlfriends. They're all very powerful leaders in the city in their own various philanthropic ways. And thought to myself then, that if we're gonna reclaim civil discourse in America, this is how we're gonna do it one kitchen table at a time. And what they didn't know was that I was in the private confidential phases of the Dean search. And I thought, if I get to become Dean at the law school, I'm gonna launch this Institute. And so we did. And we've now been on, I think we're on our eight cohort of students. And so it's adult, non-lawyer. I'm not saying we don't admit lawyers, but it's not designed for lawyers. So every class might have one or two sort of frustrated lawyers in it. But mostly it's for adult lay people to learn the Constitution. It is aggressively bipartisan. So we're very strategic in our selection of applicants to make sure that we have 20-year-olds and 70-year-olds and 80-year-olds and Republic, conservative thinkers and liberal thinkers and people from our urban centers and our rural centers and our suburban areas so that we have a very diverse group. And we have just brilliant speakers come in and talk to them about what the First Amendment really means. What does the right of petition really mean? What does free speech really mean? How does free speech really collide with you know, with religion? And so it's at every Thursday night and we're really about to, it's been so successful. It served as a pipeline for a few law students, because some students come and join the institute and fall in love with the law and decide to come to law school. I bet. And we now have an alumni group. And it's so exciting that we're about to package it and offer it to deans around the country to replicate, because it's not hard to replicate this. There is a Center for Law and Civic Education in every major community in the country, There's a United Way nonprofit with whom we partner in every community in the country. And there's a law school in every community in the country. So it's a three-way partnership. And it's really making a dent in our own little corners of the world in reclaiming civil discourse, because it's the only way our democracy is going to thrive.
1: Well, St. Mary's is ready to pilot this one. I'd love to share it. Yes,
0: thank you. I'm eager to get the package together and send it out. And how large are your cohorts? About 20 to 25 students. You can't have too many because in the end, they break up into groups of three. And a funny story, they're great but groups of three and they're they're asked a question like, Federalist Papers, 43, James Madison said, whatever. How does that relate to today's world, to our constitution? What does it mean for tomorrow? And we actually have three judges who preside over this. In the very first cohort. One of the students was talking about how nervous she was and her lawyer friend was saying, would you relax? This is kind of like a fake thing. Like this isn't even really like you're not really getting graded. Like just relax about it. <laughs> yeah. And the lawyer friend said, but tell me who the judges are. And the student told her and she said, oh, my God, you better go prepare because we actually have a U.S. Fifth Circuit judge who presides <laughs> and a judge on the Eastern District on the federal court and an appellate court judge who presides over these you know, so they they do a lot of work, it's like a real hands on it's not a being lectured to. So the cohorts are between 20 we try to keep them between 20 and 25. We do one in the fall and one in the spring. And it's been just a remarkable Institute to be a part of. We'll launch our next one just this Thursday night it will be the first class. They run essentially with our semesters. Yeah.
1: And are they in person when now that we're able to be in
0: person? They are back in person. Good. So we were in person and then we were hybrid and they're now back. They're now back in person, which is very exciting.
1: Well, the whole initiative is very exciting. So bravo to your friend who yeah, started we'll- this kitchen table initiative and to yeah. you for seeing the the usefulness on a broader scale. Um, I look forward to to seeing the package so we can get yeah, it. We'll get it out
0: to you guys pretty soon and it's very
1: generous. I also want to say very generous of you to offer it to other law schools to replicate. And that's the kind of uh approach to civil discourse we need,
0: right? If if we all Yeah, it doesn't make you know, next. if we have civil discourse on a little corner in New Orleans, Louisiana, it doesn't it's help. Gonna help. It's no. not going to help. It's not going to help, right? And so when we think about when I think about what law schools should be doing and what law schools can be doing, this is one of those things. Just like our police practices work that I think we'll talk about in a second. It's about, you know, what can we all do? You can sit around and complain, you can moan, you can groan, you can wonder, but that's not what our parents did. That's not what the founding fathers did, right? That's not what the greatest generation did. And so we're kind of called to say, this is our time. And this democracy that we have taken for granted, I don't know how old you are, but We've lived in relative peace my whole life. Mm -hmm. And that's been a great privilege, but that has not been true for our founding fathers. It wasn't true for the leaders in the civil war. It wasn't true of our civil rights leaders. And so we don't get to wimp out and just complain that things are hard. It's time Mm -hmm. to just stand on values and figure out what we can each do. And this is one thing law schools can do in America If the Constitution begins with we the people, but we the people only have one semester of civic education somewhere embedded in high school between chemistry and physics, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, right, wherever that is in there, we're just not really going to be in a position to govern as a people. And if we can't govern as a people, democracy as we know it won't survive. No.
1: And there is so much criticism, as you indicate. And, you know, being part of the problem, that's the easy part. Being part of the solution, that's more challenging, um, but so much more necessary. And you did mention the Police Practices Consortium. So I remember very vividly being a dean in my maybe third day, in my first week of July 2020 or June 2020, when I was, it was the pandemic. and and George Floyd was murdered and all the deans were saying, should we make a statement? Here's my statement. And I was seeing all these things come across and, you know, it was such a time of just absolute heartbreak and and despair um, for all of us who were watching that happen, but especially for our students of color and our communities of color. And I still remember the the email from Andy Perlman, as I recall, who said, hey, I have this idea. Maybe I we idea. could all get together and, you know, start this law school consortium on police practices. And so there were more than 50 of us who signed up to be part of that initial cohort. And uh, I had the, the privilege of working on the nominations committee. And you ended up as chair. And I'm so thrilled. So you are the chair of the American Bar Association Legal Education Police Practices Consortium. And I'd love for you to tell us about that, but also tell us about your own program uh, that partners with the New Orleans Police Department and Loyola's Law School.
0: Yeah, I think actually that partnership was why they asked me to serve. And I was just so honored to do it. I was not in the original cohort. Andy Perlman had the idea, Harry Osowski, you know, several came together and came up with the idea and then later learned that my law school had already been partnering. And when I use partnering, I mean in a non-legal sense of partnering, right? It's not an official partnership. But the police department here in New Orleans, when we were coming out of Hurricane Katrina, it was no secret that the New Orleans Police Department was in a really troubling way. And we learned about all sorts of very difficult decisions and awful things that were happening. And we were now under a federal consent decree. My brother was mayor, invited the Department of Justice in. the police department was under a federal consent decree. And coming out of that consent decree, born with rank and file officers, born from rank and file officers and community leaders, began a training called EPIC, Ethical Policing is Courageous. And it was designed to give police officers another set of tools that when your partner was using excessive force, the only choices law enforcement had that they were taught was either rat or snitch on your partner, which didn't feel very comfortable. Right, yeah. Or remain silent, which felt equally uncomfortable. And ethical policing was focused on the science of active bystandership was to say, there's actually a way to be an active bystander and intervene without losing command and control of the scene, right? Because law, you've got to maintain command and control of the scene. So undermining your partner at the scene undermines command and control. So this was a new way of thinking about it. And the New Orleans Police Department just called me and said, we need to have this training. Can we host it at your law school? And this is pre-George Floyd's murder. It was Mm -hmm. pre the summer of 2020. It's actually two years before that, after Ferguson. And um, we had about 200 um, chiefs of police and leaders of law enforcement around the country here at our law school learning about the science of active bystandership. So when I learned about the consortium and I shared that, they're like, well, then you you should be chair. I'm like, no, that doesn't really (laughs) give me authority, but yes, I will. So that has turned into your folks can go look it up. Georgetown has picked it up and it's now able uh, active bystandership for law enforcement. And Georgetown um, has a huge program now where they're training law enforcement all over the country in active bystandership. And had um, Officer Chauvin been trained on EPIC, one of his folks would have walked over and picked up his knee and moved it to the small of George Floyd's back and off of his neck, mm-hmm. right? One of his peers at the scene would have gone in and intervened in a respectful, maintain control, but still maintain the dignity of Mr. Floyd. And it wouldn't have never happened. So we've been doing that with law enforcement here, helping them as needed in the city and offering our law school as a place for them to come train because it's it's more, it's not about training how to handcuff or how to restrain or how to arrest. It's more about the dignity of people. So when you can be in a different training facility, in a different space, in a law school space, it feels better. So we've launched a few initiatives. One of them is our police for tomorrow, rather Crescent City Corps, where we're training mid-level leaders about how to be a leader in a law enforcement setting. So those are two initiatives that we've launched here, and we continue to just partner with the department in all ways that they want us to assist them. What you can do as a law school is just lift the department up and share your resources. And there are plenty of resources in law schools to aid your local police departments, Mm -hmm. even your university police departments on how to properly interview victims of sexual assault, how to interview alleged perpetrators of assault. Like there are all sorts of ways that law schools have talent within their faculty and within their student body to lend assistance to law enforcement agencies as they think about how to become better at what they're designed to do, which is public safety. So it's all really about reimagining public safety. It's not about trashing the police or undermining the police or defunding the police, although I know that's a cry. Some, and I understand the defund movement, right? Because it's all about reimagining. So we try very hard in the consortium to offer opportunities for law schools through webinars through speaker series to expose law schools to opportunities and then law schools can just kind of like a menu grab what might work for you and leave what doesn't. Right. So we're very excited about it and we'll have this year will be the second year since the consortium began that we'll have actual law student fellows working in the consortium as a fellow on research and projects with the consortium. So if your listeners haven't yet looked at our consortium opportunities, the website, it's a little slow to get up and running, we're a little frustrated at that, but we should have that up and running soon, but they can reach out to me, they can reach out, they can Google it and find out who to reach out to, to see if you can't have a fellow join the consortium because last year's fellows were so excited. Think about how exciting it is as a law student to work with 40 other law students from around the country on one common goal and similar project. Around supporting yeah. reimagining public safety.
1: We had one, and we're very yeah. excited about the program. So, thank yeah. you for your leadership with that. And uh, we continue to be proud to be part of the Legal Education Police Practices Consortium in partnership with the ABA. Uh, before we conclude, I wanted to ask you about your thoughts regarding the evolution of legal education in the coming decade. You know, we've had about 10 years of change in two years, right, with the pandemic. And so I wonder if you have some thoughts about what role law schools are going to be playing or how we're going to be delivering legal education in the coming 10 years.
0: Yeah, I do wish that I had a crystal ball. I think that law will always remain relevant. We are going to struggle with this in person hybrid, how to deliver legal education. I think we have to think about the hybrid opportunity as an opportunity, but not in the place of relationships, because it is in the halls where it happens. Yes. If I could take my time and write an article on it, I would, right? It is not, you know, when you click off a Zoom, you're just off and you're away. And some of the richness, I think about my father's own time here at Loyola, where You know, there was no playbook about how they were going to end segregation and how integration was going to work. And I doubt they could have done it over a computer screen with a click on and click off. It was the times that they spent together thinking and dreaming and experiencing life with one another. I just had an opportunity to visit with Dr. Francis, who was my dad's best friend this week that we've been mourning the loss of my dad. I went out to sit and visit with him because I lost my dad, but he lost his lifelong best friend. And partner, and he was sharing with me, and this story has been shared many times. The first bus trip they took after Norman was admitted to law school, and dad wondering why they hadn't stopped yet to use the bathroom or to get something to eat. And Norman said, Moon, we can't stop anywhere in the South. We're not welcomed. And that was a foreign concept to my dad. He was like, Why not? Like, what's the problem? Right. And so it's the relationships that they had and learning to walk in each other's shoes and figuring out the societal problems that existed that they needed to solve. And so I'm really hoping that law schools can hold the in-person truth of that, right? Because right. law is about relationships and how we live in community with one another. It's just not the cold facts. There was a reporter, Walter Isaacson, who's a just a famous historian and author, wrote about reporting on my dad in his very young days as a reporter, and um, the chief of police had made an announcement that was contrary to what my father had said they were going to do relative to integration. And this reporter wrote on it, said, the administration has changed course. And dad called Walter and he said, you got the story wrong. He said, Mr. Mayor, I got the facts right because your chief of police said it. And dad said, you got the facts right, but you missed the truth. The facts can be right, but the truth is somewhere else, right? And so I think for law schools, I'm an eternal optimist Mm -hmm. and law schools are about keeping a society organized. That's what laws do. They keep a society organized. Right. And if we're going to keep a society organized in a way that gives dignity to all people, then law students have to be in community with one another. So I think that we're going to use the Zoom or Meetup or whatever hybrid model we want to use to enhance and to enhance law schools, but I'm hoping we understand the importance of relationships as we move forward. It's the only thing that's ever worked. Well, it's
1: an excellent point. And it'll be interesting to see because you're right. The law can't be all transactional. We won't make any progress that way. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you so much. And before we conclude, I really enjoyed it before we started recording and even uh, some during this episode. I've really enjoyed learning more about your dad, and it sounds like he was an incredible father, but also amazing leader for New Orleans and Louisiana, and I'm just so very sorry about your family's loss, but delighted that everyone has been celebrating him.
0: Yeah, thank you. It's been a pretty extraordinary week. Thank you for being with us. All right, thanks so much for having me. I look forward to, we have a lot to share in common, and I love, you know, um, I just love our law schools, and I love that Catholic mission about them. It really does make a difference. It sure does. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Right, we'll see you soon. Bye. This has been another episode of EdUp Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. EdUp Legal is part of the EdUp Experience podcast and network, bringing you the brightest and most influential minds across higher education and beyond. Here at EdUp, we make education your business.